Daniel chapter 9. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9 today. And I've heard from a wise man that three-day weekends are better than two-day weekends. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope you have tomorrow off. And we are going to dive right into Daniel chapter 9 because it's a pretty long passage and we'll get going. But first, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for creating the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Uh, Father, we thank you most of all for sending your son Jesus here to be our guide and to save us for all eternity. It's for that reason that we're here today celebrating as a group. We ask you to be our teacher. Bless this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Lonnie said, uh, my name is Steve Marshman. I'm one of your elders here. And we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9 because we're in an entire series called Daniel Faithful in a Broken World. So if you haven't been here, or if you're, you're new or you're visiting because it's a three-day weekend, I thought I'd start with just a quick recap of the book just so we can all get on the same page. And if you remember, Daniel's an Old Testament prophet. Daniel chapters 1 through 6 are narrative stories about the faith of Daniel and his three friends. And chapters one through six are kind of almost normal, if you want to use that word. Uh, though there's some pretty cool stories, like Daniel and the lion's den is in that section. And that's probably one of the most famous parts of, of Daniel. But then we move to chapter seven. And seven to 12 are apocalyptic literature. And it gets a little bit crazy. And Jose's been guiding us through how do we read apocalyptic literature. And there's dreams and visions. And some of us, and me included, get a little confused at times. Uh, but there's also this key phrase, son of man, in chapter 7 of Daniel that Jesus uses to describe himself in all the Gospels. So Jose covered that in depth. So please go listen to those podcasts if you haven't heard that. And then today, we'll spend the whole day on one chapter, Daniel chapter 9. And most of the chapter is a prayer. So if you're like me, you don't know anybody that says, I pray enough and I've got that wired. I mean, just nobody says that, right? Prayer is something we have to constantly work at. And today we're going to see an example from a very, very godly, faithful man, how he prayed. And then we're also going to get a really cool answer from an angel, Gabriel. So that'll be, that's what's coming today. And then next few weeks will be Daniel chapter 10 through 12. And I would encourage you to read all three of those chapters this week sometime because that's one long vision. Jose, I'll cover it one week at a time, but it's going to be one long vision. And before we jump into today's message of Daniel 9, I want to ask you just a rhetorical question. Are you enjoying the book of Daniel? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty cool, isn't it? And one of the reasons why it's enjoyable is because it's meant to encourage us. It's not just a historical book. It's actually there to encourage us. And I just find it fascinating that it's actually 2,500 years old. I mean, that's old. That's a long time, right? I can't even imagine what 2,500 years is like, really. I mean, we have a hard time with 200 years. But it's an old book, but it's relevant for today. And we're going we're gonna to in, uh, dive in right now. But it, it is here to give us encouragement and hope. Now, this apocalyptic literature, which we're in, uh, this week isn't as tough as other weeks until the very end. So it'll be a little bit before we get to the tough, tough part. But I, I'm going to throw up a slide on the screen. It's a quote from some scholarly folks that are going to help us with particularly Old Testament apocalyptic literature. And this is what the quote says. It's by Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard. Apocalyptic has a unique view of God's relationship with human history. 
The events of human history had plunged the Israelites into such despair that they doubted whether God still controlled it. In reply, apocalyptic, and that's apocalyptic literature, held out hope of God's sovereign intervention beyond history, an intervention so radical as to usher in an utterly new era. And I don't know about you, but I find it fascinating to think about how much does God intervene in history? And frankly, that is one of the most debated things in all of the Bible and church history and theologians, and they debate that, you know, how much of history is actually affected or intervened or controlled by God. But we're not gonna worry about that today because we're just gonna camp on, on what everybody agrees on. And that's this, God will intervene or control as needed to make what he wants to happen, happen. Now, what level of detail that is, we're not gonna worry about that, but we're gonna get a glimpse of how God controls history to accomplish his good plan today. So as I said, we're gonna look at chapter nine, um, and then we're going to be uh, encouraged by his prayer and his answers. Let's dive in. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 and 2 is where we're going to start. It begins with uh, some cool names. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, so Daniel speaking here, understood from the scriptures, so he's reading his Old Testament, that's what he had, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So Daniel is reading his, his Bible, which is the Hebrew Bible, and he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he finds out that the desolation of Israel is going to, uh, of Jerusalem is going to last uh, 70 years. And he tells us that this occurred in the first year of Darius the Mede. So this is several years actually after chapter eight. There's a pretty big gap between chapter eight and nine in terms of years. And to me, this is pretty encouraging right out of the gate. And the reason why is because Daniel had had a very difficult life. He was in exile in Babylon. And then the Babylonians get taken over. But it's not good news because they get taken over by the Medes and the Persians. So they're not instantly letting them back to Jerusalem. And for you and I, this should be something that we think about. What happens in, in our world? Probably several of you in this room have worked for companies that have been taken over by other companies. I used to work for a company when I first moved to, to Oregon in 1992. And frankly, I thought it was going to be the last job I ever had. It's a great company, great job. Eight years went by fine. And then it got purchased by a big bank from the East Coast and everything changed. And it went from a great place to work to a not great place to work. And that might be happening to you right now. That's kind of what Daniel was going through. And what we're going to learn from Daniel is how he handled it. What do we find him doing after years in exile? Simple. He's reading the scriptures. If that's your pattern and my pattern, we need to keep that up because that's our lifeline. That's how we hear from God by reading the scriptures. And what specifically was Daniel reading? Well, I'm going to throw that up on the screen for you. You don't need to turn there. But he was reading Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. And what that passage says is the following. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Now, that's pretty crystal clear, isn't it? I mean, this is God saying, after 70 years in Babylon, 
coming, coming back. I promise I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. That to me and you is a gigantic word of encouragement because Daniel's reminding us that God always keeps his promises. 100% always. That's what it, partly what it means to be perfectly faithful. And that's what Daniel's seen as he reads this passage in Jeremiah. And just to remind you, when he was taken to exile, he was probably in his late teens. He was probably a teenager. And at this point in this story, he's probably 80. So the better part of his life, he's in exile. Yet he's reading the scripture and camping out on the promises of God. And what I find interesting is in Daniel's life, he doesn't do what we sometimes do when you're in a difficult situation for your whole life. He didn't play the victim. He didn't play the victim at all. He also didn't see himself morally superior to those around him. He took life as it was thrown at him, realizing that God has a bigger, better plan. And so after this, and he reads this, what's Daniel do? He actually sits down and prays. He prays this long prayer. It goes all the way um, through verse 19 or 20, something like that. And I'm going to read that whole prayer to you right now from the scriptures. And this is going to take about three minutes. Now, if you're like me, if you ever put anything in the microwave for three minutes, what do you do? You go do something else, right? That's like a long time in our culture. Three minutes, I'm not going to stand and watch that thing for three minutes. So when I read this passage for three minutes, I'm going to encourage you to not be distracted. So either grab your own Bible, your iPhone, it'll be up on the screen, or maybe just shut your eyes and listen, because I'm going to read it. Well, any comments, we're going to read all the way through. And to help you not get distracted, I'm going to ask you to listen for two things. The first thing is listen for Daniel's view of God as he prays. And then secondly, listen for Daniel's view of himself and of Israel. You guys ready? Okay. So clear your minds. If there's noises, ignore them. No distraction. We're going to start with this epic 2,500-year-old prayer starting in Daniel chapter 3. And this is actually very easy to understand. Okay, here we go. Daniel, uh, I'm sorry, I said chapter 3. I meant chapter 9, verse 3. Daniel 9, verse 3. Daniel speaking. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. We have sinned and have done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you have scattered us because of your unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants and the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. 
Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make request of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. What do you think? It's kind of like, wow. I don't know about you, but I've never prayed like that in my entire life. But I want to get there. I want to move that direction to have this incredible holistic view of actually what's going on. I asked you to look, listen for a couple things uh, in here. What, did, what was Daniel's view of God? I could just, just in the interest of time, I summarized them. They should be up on the screen. And we're just going to read through those real quickly, what those are. Daniel says, God is great and awesome. He keeps his covenant of love. He mentions that God is righteous four different times in that prayer. God is merciful and forgiving. He fulfilled the words spoken. He brought his people out of Egypt. And he made a name that endures. These are all the things that Daniel talked about in God, and there's a couple others too, but those are the main ones. And he really camps out on the fact that God is righteous. And it, it's an incredible list. It's a very complete view of God. And at the same time, he throws in his view of himself and Israel. What's that list look, list, what does that list look like? It's, it's a little bit depressing to read, but we're going to read through it anyway. This is what Daniel says. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants and prophets. We are unfaithful and covered with shame. We have refused to obey. We have not sought the favor of God. You know, not exactly something that you want to say, but Daniel is truly confessing the difference between God and his people. And having had the whole week to meditate on this prayer, it took me a while to notice this. And I didn't notice this at first. I tried to put myself in Daniel's place. What would it be like? What would my prayers be like if I prayed? They wouldn't be anything like this, unfortunately. I would have probably prayed against the Babylonians because I've been under their captivity for all these years, I'd probably say, God, you promised to get me out of here. These are all the things the Babylonians have done. 
Isn't it time to give me relief? I don't want this bad thing. I want a good thing. What does Daniel say about the Babylonians? Nothing. Zip. He doesn't at all. And it took me a while to figure out why is that? Why doesn't Daniel say anything about the Babylonians? I think it's because Daniel, being a man of faith, had a complete, total confidence in God's revealed plan and in God's righteousness to do the right thing. And this word righteous in, in Hebrew is a little bit different than the way we use it today. Matter of fact, we don't even really use the word today. I mean, I, I grew up in the 60s and they used it then, but it's pretty much out now, right? Nobody uses the word righteous anymore. Uh, and when people use the word righteous, they meant morally good person. But in the Bible, righteous is different. What it actually means literally in the Hebrew is someone who, who does right by you. So Daniel's actually saying that God is even righteous by sending Israel into exile. He did the right thing. And we, we struggle with this concept of the righteous judge. But Israel had sinned. Daniel made that incredibly clear, right? And the exile was the consequence of their sin. And if we just stopped there, we'd go, ah, Steve, I thought you said this was going to be an encouraging message. This isn't encouraging at all. All this says is God's righteous and we're sinners and we go to exile. But, and there's a giant but, this is the, probably the biggest encouragement of the day. God's judgment on evil is always, always attached with his ultimate purpose of restoration and blessing. That is something that is throughout the entire story of the Bible from the beginning to the end. Isn't that great good news? It's amazing good news and it's why we camp out on the story of Jesus and the story of uh, the Bible so much. See, Daniel could have been highly, highly critical of the world he lived in. He could have been cynical. He could have been negative. He could have been all these things that you and I, let's face it, we all fall into that when the world just seems totally out of control. But our world isn't as crazy as Daniel's was, and yet he kept his mind straight about God's ultimate purpose. So before we go into the last part of this chapter, uh, I want to look at one other thing about this prayer that I, that I find fascinating. What does Daniel ask for? You know, often when we pray, we praise God, we confess our sins, we give thanksgiving, and then usually in our prayers we have what's sometimes called petitions. What are, what are we going to ask the Lord God for? Well, what does Daniel ask for? It's an interesting thing. He says, God, for your sake, restore Jerusalem and restore your people. Again, that's not, I, I confess to you, that's not what my prayer would have been. My prayer would have been, God, get me out of Babylon. Now that the Medes and Persians are here, get me out of here even faster. That's what my prayer probably would have been. But that's not Daniel's prayer. He says, God, for your sake, God, for your reputation, restore Jerusalem and restore your people. How do we pull that to the 21st century? It's just slightly different, very slightly different. It's God, for your sake, restore your church and restore your people. Because we are the people of God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a person of God. You're one of the people of God. And collectively, we form the church. And we need restoration because we need to have our sins forgiven. Not for our sake. And that's the thing that really hit me. 
Daniel's not praying for his sake. He's not praying for his reputation and for his name. He's praying for God's reputation, for God's name. And it's a subtle form of pride that creeps in sometimes as I pray and as you pray and as we pray together. It's this subtle pride is about us. And no, no, ultimately it's about God and it's about his name and his restoration and, and blessing because he is the one that's righteous. He is the one that's fully worthy of our praise and he's gonna do right by us. So Daniel says, God, help us restore your reputation, your name to its proper place by having us look good, not so that we look good, but so that we reflect on you. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. It's something that I need to grow in. Now we're gonna to transition to the 77s. A lot of your Bibles say the 77s. And you go, what in the world is the 77s? And I mentioned at the beginning that what this is, is this is Gabriel's answer to Daniel's prayer. And be, before we get into this last section, I'm gonna give you some, some warnings. <laughs> Gabriel's answer is not crystal clear. It just isn't, you know, let's call it what it is. It's not crystal clear. We'll read it in just a second. I think Jose's done a fabulous job helping us to understand apocalyptic literature over the last weeks. And uh, let me just throw in my two cents about apocalyptic literature. Again, I, I really like learning about words that mean things differently in the Bible than they do in, in modern English. And in modern English, you say apocalyptic, what jumps into your mind? End times destruction, right? That's what, that's what, that's, you know, it's probably because of Hollywood. We could blame a lot of stuff on Hollywood, right? But, uh, but it doesn't actually mean that in the Bible. Apocalyptic means revelation, to reveal. That's why it, the book of Revelation is actually the apocalypse, right? But it doesn't mean end time destruction, although there is some end time destruction in the book. But literally what apocalypse mean is, uh, means is unveiling. The picture is there's a statue that an artist has, has sculpt uh, uh, made and, and he's gonna unveil it for the first time and you're gonna look and see something new that you haven't seen before. So that's what we're gonna see here. Gabriel's gonna give an apocalyptic revelation. We're gonna get a glimpse into God's plan and it's pretty cool. Now, when we read these apocalyptic passages, the other thing we have to figure out is sometimes like last week, the passage is a little bit controversial and highly debated. Other times like this week, it's so challenging that it's not even really controversial. There's a collective, we don't really know exactly what it means. And, and it's nice to know that thing. So, so what do we do when we hit a passage like this where it is a little bit confusing? I'm gonna suggest two things, two things. When you find a passage, you don't really know exactly how to read it. First, look for points of agreement. Where do all the people that are way smarter than us and have studied it for years and years and years, where do they agree? That's a good place to start. And then secondly, what's the big point? What's the main point? You get out of the, you know, the, the ground level details and what is the main point? So here, I'm gonna tell you right up front, what's the agreement on the 77s? Most scholars think that the 77s, and some of your translations say 70 weeks, most scholars agree that the 77s means 77 year periods, which if you do that math, it's 490 years. So when you read this, when you read 77, you could think 490 years. Now we, we just read that the exile is gonna be over after 70 years. Now the news is there's this new 490 year period. That's the revelation, that's the apocalypse, that's the unveiling that's gonna happen here. Some say it's a little for, literal 490 years and that's challenging because you don't even know where to start it. 
And if you don't know where to start it, you don't know where to end it. And others say it's symbolic, like it just means a long time. Now, I don't know if you care my opinion. You, you probably shouldn't because my opinion's not worth very much on this because I am definitely not a scholar on this. But when I read it, I personally think that the 77s is symbolic of a very long time. And here's why I think that, but I don't have a ton of certainty in this. I think that because the number seven is so symbolic in all of scripture. And the more sevens, the more symbolic. You remember the story of Jesus when uh, Peter asked him, should I forgive someone seven times? What did Jesus answer? Not seven times, but 77 times. So did Jesus mean, okay, keep track. And this guy's sinning against you. When you get 77, that's it, cut him off. 78, you don't have to do that. <laughs> that's not what Jesus meant, right? It was symbolic of you always forgive somebody. And I think that's what's going on here. But let's read the passage and then try to discover what's the bigger point of this passage. And unlike the prayer, I'm going to make some comments as we go through here, just in the interest of time, because we don't have to go time to go unpack all the little nuances. But I'm going to read from verse 20 to the end. You guys there? 9 verse 20. All right. The 77s. While I was speaking, that's Daniel, while Daniel was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, holy hills Jerusalem, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, previous chapters, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. Pause. So we know Gabriel's an angel. It's a total chase of squirrel moment. It has nothing to do with anything, but I just think it's really cool that Gabriel flies. <laughs> and he's not a slow poke. What kind of flight is it? It's swift flight, right? People ask me, since I'm a pilot, people ask me all the time, Steve, do you think we're gonna be able to fly when we get to eternity with Jesus? And the, the correct answer is, I don't know. But the answer I always give is, I hope so. Like Gabriel, that would be cool, right? All right, sorry about that. Verse 22. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. And Daniel's probably going, yes, I need that. Verse 23, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out. Oh, I wish we could talk about that. We just don't have the time. But when your prayers start, a word goes out in another realm. So cool. Um, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, verse 24, I think, my opinion again, is the most important part of this whole section. Because here's the 77s. Verse 24, 77s are decreed, or 490 years probably, are decreed for your people and your holy city. And listen to this long phrase, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And if your brain's going, Jesus, I think you're right. I think he's talking about Messiah, which we know as Jesus. At this time, he, Jesus wasn't named Jesus, but I think that's what's going on here. Then Gabriel takes that one verse and expands it. And this is where it gets quite confusing. Sorry about that, but we're going to do our best. Verse 25, no one understand this. From the time the word goes out, see, he doesn't give a year. He says, from the time the word goes out. Whole bunch of debate is when is that time? From the time the word goes out to restore and build Jerusalem until the anointed one, pause again. Some of your translations have capital anointed one. Some are lowercase 
anointed one. That's the debate. Some think he's talk, thinks he's talking about Jesus, the Messiah, or maybe lowercase anointed one, just another anointed ruler, like maybe Cyrus, maybe Zerubbabel. We don't know. But until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens. You go, Wait a minute, I thought it was 70 sevens. Well, Gabriel takes the 70 sevens and splits it up into seven sevens and 62 sevens. And then later comes another seven. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And I'm sure Daniel went, whoa, wait a minute. Times of trouble. That doesn't sound good. But that's what, the, that's what Gabriel's saying. Verse 26. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler will come, uh, who will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. So that's a bad dude, right? The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. That's the final seven. So you have seven, uh, seven sixty-two and one more makes 70. In the middle of the seven, he will put the end, an end to the sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end is decreed, is poured out on him. And last week, Jose talked about the abomination of desolation. It's most likely referring to a statue of Zeus that Antiochus put up in the temple just to kind of mock the Jews. So the 77s, everybody's got it clear? So what do you do with that? What do we do with that? Here's my summary. Um, hopefully it comes up on the slide. Uh, I think this is how we kind of summarize that. The 70 year exile is almost over. Israel is gonna return to Jerusalem. That's the promise of scripture and Gabriel implies that that's still going on. But the problem with Israel's heart still needs to be dealt with. And here's the encouraging promise out of this passage. Someone is coming in the future who will enable complete restoration of the heart and bring everlasting um, righteousness. And who is that? That's Messiah. That's the Messiah. That's all throughout the Old Testament. And lastly, oh, by the way, expect times of trouble and destructive forces. So... Another way to say that is the point of the 77s is after the 70 year exile, it's not over yet. It's kind of a bad news, good news. Bad news is it's not over yet. The good news is someone's coming. It's gonna take a while, maybe 490 little years, maybe just a half a millennium, it's, but it's gonna be a while before Messiah comes. And we can look back in history and say, yep, that's true. It was a half a millennium before Messiah comes. But be encouraged, Daniel. That's what Gabriel's saying. Be encouraged. There is one who is coming who will free us from sin, atone for wickedness, and bring everlasting righteousness. So what do we do with that today? Because that message to Daniel, uh, that's a little different, right? And it's a little unclear. So what, how do we apply that today? I think one of the ways we could apply it today is just how do we go about living faithfully in a broken world. That is the title of this whole, this whole series. How do we live faithfully in a broken world in light of the way Daniel lived? And I just wanna share with you some personal thoughts about how we do live as a follower of Jesus. And I'm gonna compare and contrast the typical five-year plan and the live in the moment walking down a path. And most of you are familiar with a five-year plan. If you're in business, a lot of businesses do a five-year plan. They're good for businesses. Um, they may or may not be good in your personal life. 
because I think we can run awry sometimes if we get too deal, detailed with a five-year plan. And why is that? Because so many times I don't have a clue what's going to happen in the next five years. Just if I look at my life currently, look backwards, five years ago, one of my daughters was getting engaged to Michael. Was it this month? Yep. All right. I know better than him. That's scary. <laughs> but he does know his anniversary date and that's what matters, right? So, but I didn't know they were going to have a baby. My other daughter, I didn't know she was going to be married and have two babies. I didn't know Vicky was going to get leukemia. I didn't know we were going to do good news today last year and have 5,000 people show up and a couple hundred people saved. So we're going to do it again this year. I didn't know about any of that. So my five-year plan would have been pretty lame and pretty boring. I think the way we actually live the Christian life, and since we're in the Northwest, I could use this analogy. We've probably all walked down a path with monstrous trees. You can't quite see the sun and it's usually misty. And you're walking down a path and you get to a fork and you go, I don't know which way to go. Now you might be here today with a decision in your life right now and you don't know which way to go. And you look down this way and you go, oh, that looks pretty good, but it's uphill. Look down this way, that looks better because it's downhill. But I see a sign in the distance and some of the letters I can make out and it says something about don't. I don't know what it says don't. So I'm not going to go that way. I'm actually going to go uphill. Isn't that the way our life really works? You just kind of make these choices as you go. Hopefully you're walking with the Lord as you're making these choices. And I think one of the things that we've done in, in our culture is we've, uh, we've basically made God Google Maps. Literally, you said, God, this is where I want to go. You plug in the destination and then you sit back and you wait for God to say, turn left in a mile. Stay in the right lane, you're going to turn right. Despite a seven minute delay, you're on the fastest route. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's the one I always love. But that's not the way God wants to work with us, right? He doesn't want to give us a play by play. He wants us to live life abundantly to the fullest. He wants to partner with He wants us to, to be on the path with him. So uh, one example, and I asked Vicky, I go, what's an example of our life where we really, really had to make a tough decision like this? And she reminded me when it was time to possibly leave the Air Force that we sat down and prayed and prayed and prayed. And I kept asking God, God, tell me to leave the Air Force or, or stay in the Air Force. Tell me to go get a, a, a secular job or not. And after weeks of prayer, we got goose egg, nothing. And it finally dawned on me that God was more interested in the type of person he wanted me to be than what he wanted me to go do. And that, that was a huge thing for me. So then with the help of some friends, I decided that the person I want to be was a present, a more present father and a more present husband because uh, Kelsey was little, you know, like less than a year old. I got deployed to Spain for a month. I came home for a month. I got deployed to Turkey for a month. And, and I came home and I go to pick her up and she shied away from me. I'm like, that's not the way I want to live my life. So that was the decision. It had nothing to do with career or money or anything like that. It's like, this is a value that God placed on my heart and I want to do. So how does that apply to all of us today? No matter what your story is, no matter what you're going through, no matter what fork in your path you're at right now, no matter what you could see, what do we learn from the pattern of Daniel? And it's this, first, I think we read the Bible daily. And I know we say that all the time, but you know, I eat daily, I dress daily, thank, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I brush my teeth every day. 
I eat every day. There's a lot of things I do every day, but reading the scriptures every day is what keeps me truly alive. And then, and then secondly, we pray. And your prayers aren't gonna probably be like Daniel's. And if they are, come talk to me and share them with me because I wanna hear them. Because that is just an epic, cool prayer. But our prayers do need to include confession. Confession. And then we need to listen to the answer. And why, why, do, we, why do we have to include confession in our prayers? It's because of this. 1 John 1, 9 is a passage that I remembered when I was in my 20s. I remember the New Americans, memorizing the New American Standard, so sorry, but it says this, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, we have to do that, it's conditional. If we are confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous, there's the word again, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God literally cleans us up from our sin, and that's the encouraging good news. How, how does that happen? Have you ever asked this? Like, God, you, you, you cleanse me from all my right, righteousness. I get the forgiveness, but how do you actually cleanse me? How does that actually work? Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I know it's a crazy thing for some of us, right? We wash our clothes, we, we put, them, put them in a washing machine, we open the little deal and you put Tide in there, right? And I hope this doesn't gross you out, but it's as if we need to have our sins washed. We open the drawer and we put Jesus's blood in there because the blood of Jesus literally cleanses us. And what's the result? The result is absolutely mind-blowing. And another piece of apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation, if you read through that, there's seven blessings. And the seventh and final blessing of the book of Revelation says this, blessed are those who wash their robes in the blood of Jesus, that they might have the right to the tree of life. They might have the right to the tree of life, which means by the blood of Jesus, we're gonna be made righteous. And the tree of life is symbolic of we're gonna live eternity with Jesus if we confess our sins and allow him to cleanse us by his blood. And then we live with him for eternity.